Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 3 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread, and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Welcome to this special episode, the audio recording of Bridging the Gap, co-produced by Truth Trauma Theology and Common Grounds Unity. Our co-hosts are Kyle Spears and Nick Zola. And guests are Douglas Jacoby, John Mark Hicks, and Marty Solomon. This is an extended episode, so let's get into it. All right, well, I want to welcome everyone to today's event. Hopefully everyone can hear me okay. We've been having some technical glitches, but amen. The Spirit is aiding us through uh, everything that we're having. And uh, so if there's some technical uh, glitches and so forth, just let us uh, just be patient with us, and uh, hopefully there'll be a couple of us that can let us know. I want to get straight into it because we have an incredibly packed interview. There's a lot of questions uh, that people have gotten to us, and so I want to get to that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk through why we're having this conversation. And then what Nick Zola is going to do is he's going to clarify some terms. I think shared definitions are incredibly important, especially when we when we look at why people don't see things the same way. We have to start with some shared definitions, and then we are going to get into the interview. Now, we have 10 creators that have submitted questions, 10 very different types of creators. Um, what that's going to mean is this. Not every panelist will be able to answer every single question. That's not necessarily a, an enormous problem because if you go down the questions, you'll start to notice some themes. So if one panelist is not able to answer a certain question, there will be a similar type of question that you'll notice. You'll notice the themes, and they will be able to address that on the, uh, on the next question. So uh, not every panelist will be able to answer every question, but as you'll see in the interview, I think it'll be okay. Uh, first and foremost, why are we doing this event? Why are we doing something called Bridging the Gap? Uh, the reason why we're doing this is that there are uh, different ways of thinking. You know, when you think of the different generations that are out there, um, people grew up a different way. There are these cultural heirlooms that get transferred successively. You know, we talk about the sins of the father and so forth like that. And what happens is, is that there are these cultural, these generational heirlooms that get transferred as burdens to the next generation. And part of what happens is our theology sometimes um, is reflective of trying to deal with the culture around us, but also the generational burdens that have been passed from one generation to the next. And so, so when that happens, uh, you get different types of, of pockets of people, different tribes. And so that the second reason I'm doing this isn't just in terms of why one generation thinks a certain way. Um, it also has to do with the downstream effects of when one generation wants to break away from another or one generation pushes another away. However that happens, you end up with these different tribes. What trauma does typically, though, is it makes us overdo anything. Even protective stress responses are overdone. And so what we notice is, is that there's all these different pockets of people who kind of believe very similar things, 
But what we see is this consistent stress response to overdue tribe. So what I wanted to do today is I wanted to get out of tribe. I, I think some of us uh, probably need to get out of ourselves, our rigid ways of thinking, and hear different ways that different people think. Uh, the last reason I did this Bridging the Gap uh, interview today is due to part of, again, that generational rigidity that can occur as a stress response. Um, and there's also been advances in technology and so forth like that. You have all these different platforms and creators nowadays. And I get for some people that feels like a threat. Why? Because, you know, the pulpit has been democratized. I get it. Right. And everybody's saying something. Everybody's competing for attention and influence. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to get out of the competitive mode or get out of the mode where we're so disconnected. And I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to use this platform and common grounds, uh, to, kind of bring people together. That's why I reached out to Common Grounds. Common Grounds has done one of the best jobs I've noticed on creating connection between people who have different perspectives within their various tribe and so forth. They've done an, ex an exceptional job of doing that. And so that's why I brought them in today. Without further ado, I'm going to have Nick Zola uh, introduce a couple of terms, just clarify a couple of terms for us. All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Nick Zola. I am an associate professor of New Testament religion uh, at Pepperdine University. And uh, and I was pleased to be invited to participate uh, in this panel and really as uh, kind of a question asker in many ways. And so you won't be hearing much more from me after this opening segment. Um, but uh, Kyle asked me to tell you something about what the restoration movement is and then also say a word about what these generations are that uh, that we're kind of exploring, trying to bridge the gap between so here's how I thought we could approach this kind of, this is the five minute version of, of, the, of the Stone Campbell restoration movement, is you can kind of think of it in two, two stories or two versions maybe of one story. So one version, the first story, is that it is the story of these two groups of churches that came together, one group led by Barton Stone, another group led by Alexander Campbell, and this is in the early 1800s. And what they noticed, these two groups, is they had a lot of similarities to each other. They had a lot of similarities into how they were approaching Christianity and how they were reading and practicing the Bible. They noticed that they, were, for instance, were non-creedal. They didn't like creeds or big, long faith statements. They thought those divided people. They had a special emphasis on baptism and the role of baptism and uh, on the weekly taking of the Lord's Supper and an emphasis on the New Testament church. They said to themselves, well, what if we joined together? What if we, what if we unified over this? And they did. And it was this beautiful moment of Christian unity. And they came up with these, uh, these really kind of resonant uh, and adopted re resonant slogans, things like in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity, or in all things, love, or other, other slogans that they adopted were things like uh, Christians only, but not the only Christians. And so in this side of the story, this version of it that I'm telling, um, then at the heart of the restoration movement is really a unity movement, that, that their, their idea was creeds, faith statements divide, human names divide, and so let's not align ourselves by what human we follow, let's not align ourselves by this list of things that we believe, let's unite ourselves under the name of Jesus Christ and, and with the New Testament as our guide, nothing more, nothing less. 
And it sounds wonderful. And it really was wonderful for a while. At least there's kind of an Acts 2 moment here in sense of all of the all of the believers being together and sharing everything and having everything in common. But then there's the other side of the story, the other the other version that we could tell that kind of parallels this at the same time, which is that it's called a restoration movement for a reason that one of the things that they were trying to do in the process of all of this was to restore or or reform the New Testament church in some way. And so they would read the New Testament as a model, as a, as a blueprint for what the modern, the current church should look like. And you can call this various things. People will call it patternism sometimes, that the idea is that you're patterning yourself after the New Testament church, and you're trying to recreate the New Testament church in, in today's setting. And, and they quickly discovered that they didn't always agree on that. And so, again, some of these slogans, it sounds really beautiful to say, in essentials, unity and non-essentials, liberty. But what if we don't agree on what the essentials are? What if what if I think that something is crucial that, that you think is no big deal? Then then how do we unify over that? Uh, another slogan that 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 came out early was where the scriptures speak, we speak where the scriptures are silent. We are silent. And again, that sounds great. It sounds like a like a beautiful idea, except what what do you do with that silent part? So if the scriptures are silent about something, does that give us the freedom to do what we think is best in that situation? Or if the scriptures are silent, does that mean that we can't do certain things because they're silent on the matter? And so even scriptural silence, the question became, is scriptural silence inherently permissive or is it inherently constraining? What do we do? And so in this version of the story, it turns out that restoration is not that easy and that restoration in many ways is at odds with unity. And you can't stay together if you can't agree on how to restore the New Testament church. And so that's how this story kind of plays out. These two versions of the story as, as they coalesce is that it is always this tension and this balance between restoration and unity and how do we achieve both at the same time. And over time, what began as a unity movement splinters into these various streams that we are used to today. So in the early 1900s, the church of Christ and the Christian churches split, uh, ostensibly over certain doctrinal issues, but also as a result of what's happening in their times, the, the ending of the Civil War and other cultural moments that are uh, and economic factors that are happening during their time. In the 1960s, now it's the Christian churches and the disciples of Christ that split, and again, over certain doctrinal and cultural combination of issues. In the 1980s and then into the early 90s, it's the churches of Christ and the international churches of Christ that split, again, over some of the same types of things, doctrinal issues and cultural moments and things. And so today we have these various streams that you might say of the Stone Campbell restoration movement. And then this is where uh, Common Grounds comes in. So Kyle mentioned Common Grounds, which is an organization that I am uh, part of and proud to be a part of. And the, the, the motto of Common Grounds, our motto is, so another slogan if we want to throw that out, is uh, unity starts with a cup of coffee. And by that, we mean simply that sitting down, sharing a drink, sharing a meal with a fellow Christian gets us back to our heritage. And, and not just our heritage in this kind of unity movement of the Stone Campbell group, but back to our heritage in Jesus, because this is what Jesus prayed for. John 17, Jesus prays that all of the followers, all of his followers would be one as he and the Father are one. And also in John, Jesus talks about how people will recognize that we are disciples, that we are his followers by the love that we have for one another. And so that's what Common Grounds is trying to do. At Common Grounds, we believe that we recognize the face of Jesus in each other when we sit down 
and share a meal when we break bread together, or maybe today's equivalent would be when we when we share a cup of coffee together. And so hence the metaphor of common grounds. What what do we have in common, that, that common grounds image? And that's what we're doing here today. That's what part of this conversation is about. We've got three different panelists here today, uh, one from the Christian churches, one from the Churches of Christ, and one from the International Churches of Christ. And we're here to talk about, as Kyle has already introduced, bridging a gap, bridging the gap. In this case, not necessarily or just bridging the gap between these different streams, although that's obviously part of what this breaking free of some of these tribes and, and the ways that we think of tribes. Um, but more than that, um, bridging the gap between these different generations and thinking about how the generations approach biblical interpretation and how they put their faith into practice and all of that. And, and I think that question in particular, the generational question, is deeply relevant because in some of these splits that I've just mentioned between the various streams of the Stone-Campbell Restoration Movement, you can sometimes attribute some of those splits to differences in generations, particularly, I would say, between the split in the International Churches of Christ and the Churches of Christ, which is the one that I know the most of those three, um, in the split in terms is what I mean, is that you can you can certainly attribute much of that uh, to generational differences in the ways that they approach to their understanding of Christianity and living out their faith. And so then the last quick thing that I have been tasked with introducing you to or saying, and I'll introduce our speakers in a, in a more full way in just a moment, is to say something about the generations and what and what we mean when we say generations and you know agreed upon terms. Um, I'll confess that this is not an area of strength for me. In fact, I often get myself confused about who's in which generation and what generation I am in because I'm I was born kind of on the cusp of one of those generations that we often um, kind of demarcate. And so here's what I thought would be the easiest way for me to go about doing this. Rather than give you some kind of strict definition of generations, I just wanted to make a couple of very quick observations as a professor and, and kind of as my um, as somebody who, who sees different generations and interacts with the ones I'm in, the ones before me, and the ones that come after me. One observation that I've made recently is that all of my students at this point, so I teach undergraduate students, graduate students too, but I'm talking about my undergraduates. So I teach mostly undergraduates. All Basically all of my students at this point were born after 9-11, which was, which was a moment for me to realize that this kind of significant moment in my life, so 9-11 was my first year of college. So for me, that was a um, that was kind of one of those milestone moments or something that I will continue to define before and after for. All of my students now from this point forward have been born after 9-11. And that's kind of my, my observation or my question to you as you who are listening today or will watch this recording later. Um, what, are, what are the cultural moments? What are the observations? What are, what are the signs of things that happened in your generation that came to define your generation in some day? And so I can think of lots of examples here, and I'm sure you can too. Often these are disastrous things that bring a, bring a community together, things like the Kennedy assassination or the Challenger explosion, but they're also kind of great moments of revelation like the moon landing or, you know, or uh, President Obama being elected or other kind of moments of great cultural shift or things like that. Um, and so so what are the moments for your generation or for the, for the community that you are part of, maybe a particular song or a pop culture moment or movie that, that emerged that, that have come to define your generation? Those are the things that, whether we kind of realize it or not, will often influence deeply how we approach the, the rest of life and also how we read our text, how we operate and interact with each other. Uh, another and then quick observation, then I'll make kind of number two for this part, is um, 
I remember when I saw the first my first iPhone because it was when I was getting married. The year that I got married is when the Apple <laughs> iPhone came out. My students can't remember a time prior to an iPhone. Their entire upbringing has been with smartphones in that world. And so there, there are cultural shifts. There are technological shifts. There are things that happen that change the way that we interact with each other. And so I wanted to bring up those points to say this is how I think often about generations and how I think about the the effect that the the ocean that we're swimming in, so to speak, changes the currents. And so now I'll kind of draw it back to that to that first image that I've given you of we have these different streams in the Stone Campbell movement, these kind of various currents that are flowing along. But we're all kind of streams or currents in a much larger ocean. And being aware of the ocean that we're swimming and being aware of the water that we are in and not taking it for granted will help us unpack our own uh, assumptions and kind of inner motivations and reasons for why we say what we say and do what we do. And that's what I hope this conversation will be able to accomplish. So if I, if you wanted, I'll just do this last part. If you want kind of the strict traditional definitions of these generations, here's, here's that for you, for anybody who wants it. The mid 1940s to the mid 1960s is often considered the baby boomers. The mid 60s to the late 70s is often considered generation X. Uh, the early 80s to, say, the mid-90s are often called the millennials, and then the mid-90s to, say, the 2010, 2012, sometime around then, are often called uh, Generation Z. So now you have that, and I did, I did my job there for that. Um, that's all I'm going to say. I want to make sure that we get to the panel there uh, and, and that we can jump right into our questions. Let me say then a quick word about who we have with us. Three different streams of the restoration movement represented here today. Uh, we have John Mark Hicks uh, representing the Churches of Christ. I shouldn't say representing, but as a member from the Churches of Christ, uh, who is a professor of theology at Lipscomb University in Nashville. We have Marty Solomon, who is the host of the Bema podcast that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, and also the president of Impact Campus Ministries uh, as a member from the Christian Churches. And we have Douglas Jacoby here with us, who is an international teacher. Uh, Teacher, uh, teacher for the International Bible Teaching Ministry, an author and a speaker representing the International Churches of Christ. Um, I think I've I think I've done what you wanted me to yes. do. Yes, sir. There's more I should have said. You're good to go. All Let's right. Let's get into the first question. Let's do it. So I think I'm tasked <laughs> with uh, with doing the first question. Yes. Uh, these questions have been sent in to us from various groups. This first question comes from the Revolution of the Ordinaries. And uh, Kyle and I kind of designated who we thought would make sense for uh, who would answer this question. So, so this one uh, is for you, Doug, for the first one. But we say that rather loosely. So if other people want to throw in extra ideas or, um, or if Doug wants to reject this and, you know, and give it to somebody else, uh, then, then you're, we're happy to do that and kind of be flexible as we go. Um, some of these questions, I will warn you, are not always worded in a extremely... Uh, succinct way. And so I'm going to read kind of the longer version because we wanted to, to to pay our respects to the people and how they sent the question in. So sometimes we'll read it quite a bit and then I'll try to summarize what it is I think the question is, is asking here. So Douglas, here is, here's your question from Revolution of the Ordinaries. Uh, the author writes, I have noticed more and more people trying to systematize theology through the lens of the love of God. And I think that's that's the key for this question is is the love of God kind of the overarching principle through which we should understand everything else that we do in the text? But the question continues. Uh, I heard someone say the other day that we know God wouldn't condemn a particular thing because that would be unloving. 
So we need to have explanations for that issue, of that issue, that show how God doesn't condemn it. There are certain, certainly strong presentations or stronger presentations to this approach than the one I just mentioned, but what he's getting at is, is um, you know, is love of God kind of the way of reading that, that um, defines all other readings as the lens. His question then becomes, is this idea, the love of God being the, the lens, is this eisegesis? So are, we, are you reading your own you know, idea into it? And is it appropriate to pass our interpretation through this framework? Is this the right framework? My belief is, the author continues, that we don't know what God knows, and we don't, nor do we know, uh, nor do we see things as God sees things. And, and so what might seem loving or unloving to us may not match up ultimately with what God knows about things. So, Doug, has that been enough for you? Do you, do you understand the nature of the question? I think so. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Matt, for the question. It reminds me of a conversation I had just a few weeks ago with the clergyman in Scotland, where we live, who this is his only lens. And because of that, anything goes morally. He doesn't believe in a judgment day and everyone will eventually make it to heaven because God is love. If you focus only on that, I think maybe some of his conclusions are, are logical. But Paul reminds us to consider the sternness and the mercy of God. These are two sides of a coin. Uh, truth has hard edges. Right now, there's a movement in the evangelical world, which I think is very influential in the ICOC, uh, to feel uncomfortable about the so-called God of the Old Testament. Um, and we're thinking that we're being more biblical, but this is really problematic because for Jesus, his father is the God of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was his Bible, which he quotes from as scripture. He never says we should distance ourselves from it. Uh, so truth has some hard edges to it. Reality um, just tends to be that way. And so just the lens of love alone, that's not enough. In fact, it's a distortion because we're supposed to behold the kindness and the sternness of God. These things go together. A God who didn't judge would not be a God worthy of worship one who made no distinctions for whom anything went, regardless of what it was, crime or perversion. No, um, perpetrators of Holocaust need to be held to account. That's not okay. And to pretend that God's love will eventually win everyone over is a lovely thought. And I wish it were, I wish it were biblical, frankly. Thank you, Doug. Is there anybody who feels the need to, to add one more thing in before we move to the next question? And you'll get more chances to address this, I think, along the way. But feel free if you let me, want. Let me add uh, something else here. Go ahead. Um, God is love comes from 1 John chapter 4. I mean, that's where the statement is made. But we have to also remember that in 1 John, it's also said God is light and in him is no darkness. Mm. That there's a, there's a balance here. Uh, God is love. God is light. And what we do, what we need to do is not read the biblical narrative through the lens of God is love, but read the biblical narrative through the lens of who God is. God is light and love. So I think uh, to, to isolate God as love as if that is the essence um, and nothing else is true about God. And to add, and then to define love by cultural osmosis or whatever, or cultural perceptions, we have to live in the narrative itself. And I think this goes to Doug's point, you know, realizing the whole narrative here of Israel and what we call the New Testament. 
So we are to find ourselves in that narrative, not to find out where the narrative fits our world, but rather how we participate in the narrative and where we find ourselves in that narrative. And so we need to be able to confess God is love, but we also confess God is light. And how to connect those two, relate those two, needs to arise out of the narrative of Scripture itself and not out of the narrative of our cultural sensitivities. Thank you, John. All right, I'm going to move on to the next question here, but this one actually is also directed to John, and it's there's a, a pretty nice transition from this idea to the next. So, John, you'll be able to say maybe more, and then if you've said as much as you want to say, we can we can let other panelists jump in as well. Uh, so this next question comes from I Cannot, uh, is is the group that has sent this one in. And again, um, I got I got the kind of two much longer questions here at the beginning. So bear with me, John, because this this one is is much longer. But I think the gist of it will become clear. And the gist of it basically is um, to what degree do we do we follow kind of the current trends and to what degree do we buck against the, the trends, which which connects back to some of what I was saying earlier about uh, knowing the ocean that we swim in. So here here's the longer question, and then it will it will end with this kind of a, an idea of to what degree do do you allow the fear of God and kind of the full respect of God uh, direct how you interpret Scripture? That's where it's going, but this is the longer version of it. We can all agree that the Scriptures are paramount in our understanding for who God is. Our understanding of who God is will vary depending on what viewpoints we've been exposed to, how we interpret the scriptures, how much we familiarize ourselves with the Bible by reading it regularly. Uh, I believe that the younger generations can fall prey to whatever gospel is, is quote unquote, trending at the time. This trending gospel is attractive because it attracts the largest crowd and uh, that streams and screams the loudest. I don't even believe that these trends are always produced from purely evil motives, um, but often come from people genuinely trying to draw people to Jesus and make Jesus attractive. And and because our generation, and so this is written by somebody who is in, in the younger generation, because our generation would prefer listening to podcasts and audiobooks than actually dig into the scriptures themselves, we can uh, easily uh, we can be easily convinced by even the weakest of arguments. We can be tricked into thinking that truth is in the masses. And I believe that the trending gospel of today is the unoffending Jesus. So not unlike the previous question that we just covered. A Jesus that affirms all of our life choices and wants us to feel special without a call to be transformed into his image and without a call to carry one's cross. We want to feel forgiven without uh, ever acknowledging our sin. And yet, in Jesus' time, he offended and humiliated the religious leaders. And he cites Luke 13 here. He made the rich young ruler uh, sad because he didn't want to change. He made crowds grumble. He made disciples afraid. He hurt his close friend Peter, asking him if he really loved him. These passages can be justified and glossed over. They can be omitted uh, or cast aside as no longer relevant to our evolved modern culture. And so now we get to, I think, where the, where the question lies in all. Um, there is not a posture of trembling before the word of God, as in Isaiah 66, 2, uh, that encourages us to be to be trembling before the word of God. So um, the question is, how does your fear of God impact the way that you interpret scripture and teach it to others? Let me know if I can clarify anything for you. No, that's fine. Um, 
this notion of the unoffending Jesus. Uh, let me let me address that uh, particularly. When I think about the Sermon on the Mount, for example, the call to radical discipleship there that is present, um, loving our enemies, um, putting first the kingdom of God, and, and uh, treating others as we would want to be treated, uh, like the law and the prophets tell us to do, right? When he comes to the end of that sermon, Jesus basically says, if you listen to me and you do what I say, you hear my word, you're like a wise person. But if you don't hear my word and don't practice the things that I say, you're a fool. You're building your house on sand. I think that would be pretty offensive to a lot of people today to hear that that we take the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and say, this is the wise way to live. And if, you don't, and if we don't practice this way of living, then you're headed down the path of foolishness. Now, that's a broad gate. You know, that's a, that's, there are a lot of people doing that. But the call of Jesus is to choose the wise way. And I think there's a, um, a sense of prophetic message in Jesus when he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I think if we have this kind of sentimental Jesus who never offends anybody or never says a hard word or never makes a, a hard demand or a calm, I, I don't think that's the Jesus of the Gospels. Now, the Jesus of the Gospels is clearly compassionate, clearly forgiving, seeks reconciliation, wants to uh, seek and save the lost. So all of that is very much present. I wouldn't want to divert from that whatsoever. But at the same time, or at the same time, there is embedded in this call to repentance and this call to a way of life, a, a wisdom that if we reject that wisdom, then we're choosing a path, a path of foolishness. Uh, and whether he's dealing with the, the rich young ruler or the people standing around in Luke 13 or, or just the audience of uh, John the Baptist's disciples where he speaks the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if we see it as a prophetic message that Jesus embraces and uh, articulates, uh, it's a word of the Lord from God, right, to the people. And it calls us to a, a submissiveness, a hearing that submits to the will of God expressed by the prophetic ministry of Jesus, who himself is, according to the Gospel of John, the word of God himself, the word of God in flesh. So a submissiveness to Jesus um, and hearing the call of Jesus that can be quite offensive. Love your enemies. That's can be offensive to a lot of people. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, the unoffended Jesus is not, is not the Jesus of the New Testament, not the Jesus of the Gospels. And I would call us to come back to the narrative, live within the narrative, find ourselves in the narrative rather than drawing our definitions and our, our, um, our sentimentalities or whatever we want to call it you know, from the narrative, which goes back to God is love and God is light. Now, the God of love does deal justly, right? How do we know that God loves us? Because he sent his son and offered him as a halasmas, a however you might translate that, propitiation, expiation, atonement, whatever it is, 
the cross is where God did something that brought together in the, in the integral holiness, wholeness of who God is, the God who is both light and love. And when you're light, that can be offensive sometimes to those who love the darkness. And I think we have to accept that. We do what is right. Thank you. I want to see if Marty, Marty, you haven't gone yet. Do you want to, you want to share about this one, bro? Um, yeah, uh, I wasn't planning on it, but now that you ask me, <laughs> uh, my name wasn't on the spreadsheet. Let's see. Um, yeah, I think, um, I'm reviewing some of the, I mean, yeah, I think there are, I think there are parts of this question that I would just want us to be honest about. Because I think when, like we talk about a gospel that is attractive to the masses. Well, when that gospel is the one we're using and it's attracting the masses, well, then it's the work of God. When that gospel is not our favorite gospel and it's attracting the masses, then it's tickling the ears of culture. Um, so to be honest about, I love, I love the idea of an offendable Jesus. I would ask the question of who, it, who, who is it that Jesus offends over and over and over again throughout the gospel? It is not the outsider or the sinner. It's the religious, which I always think we don't associate. I love, uh, John's invitation to identify with the narrative associate with the characters who do we associate with and i think there's an invitation for us to be honest about who are the ones in our culture who's the ones in our in our settings and in our context that claim to know and speak for jesus because usually it's people like me it's people like us on the panel it's we're the ones in the gospels that are routinely offended over and over and over again. Um, I, I do think about, it was this Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who, when asked the two greatest commandments, when, and if we don't view it through the lens of systematic theology, we're trying to understand it through this lens of this original context. You know, it, it was this Jesus that said, well, my rabbinical hermeneutic is a, is a hermeneutic of love. Now, I don't think that means, like what we were talking about in the first question, um, that now all of a sudden everything goes and there's no morality and 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 like uh, Doug's friend in Scotland. But um, I, I do think there's a yeah yeah. I think our rabbi told us we have to. I think our I think Paul doubled down on that and even shortened it up some. Jesus said, "You read the scriptures through love God and love others." That is our filter. Doesn't mean that nothing else matters. Actually, everything matters, and it gets filtered through that. Paul then doubles down on it, makes it even more simple, just loving others. Paul says that all hangs on one command, just love your neighbor as yourself. So this becomes, so yeah, I think there are, I think there's some really good questions. Um, yeah, just to, to add a, I don't know if it's a counterpoint, but um, those are some of my thoughts as I, as I thought about that and read those questions. Thanks, Marty. Um, so this next one, and, and I think, uh, 
ostensibly again this one is is for Doug but probably all of you might have thoughts and how to weigh on in on this and as Marty kind of hinted at we we have these designated so Marty has some questions coming up after this so don't worry we'll get to hear more I referenced uh, the spreadsheet um, I shouldn't have done that I referenced the super top secret <laughs> thing that does not you broke the fourth wall what were you doing um all right so this next one is from that bible guy uh, and this is a shorter question, so I get to ask a slightly shorter one, this one. Uh, and Doug, this one has to do with the nature of Scripture itself and, and how, how we understand what Scripture is, and particularly these, these words that we like to throw around a lot, like inspiration and inerrancy and that kind of thing. And so, so feel free to kind of take that in the direction that, that you feel it would make the most sense. But here's the question as written. Um, how can we encourage the view that all the Bible is God-breathed, and useful, and then in parentheses, the author has biblical inerrancy. And how can we avoid the next generation relegating certain books to be of lesser value? For instance, the author goes on, uh, when someone doesn't like what the Bible teaches, as we all have at some point, it can be easy to diminish that that book and that say, command by stating, well, you know, that wasn't Jesus, or Jesus didn't say that, or, you know, or Paul, or Peter, or John, or whoever it is who said that wasn't Jesus. And so the author is asking, what, what can we teach to help develop the idea that all of the Bible has been verbally inspired by God and should be treated as direct communication from him? And then the author adds this qualifying point, obviously allowing for context and the type of writing being discussed. So I'll, I'll leave that one there for you or for anybody else uh, who would like to take that one on. Um, thank you for your question, Simon, in Ireland, and greetings from Moldova. It's an important question. Um, it's a temptation to have favorite scriptures. And we might say we believe all scripture is useful, but the ones that we read and use probably tell the story of what we really believe. We don't want to end up with a canon within a canon. Many of us have heard of red letter Bibles. This is something that first existed in 1899. So the words of Jesus are in red. Although sometimes it's hard to actually know where the words of Jesus begin and end in the New Testament, but and then everything else is black, as though there's there are two tiers. That's totally artificial. For Jesus, the whole Old Testament was the word of God. For me, the whole Bible is the word of God. So what can we do? Individually, we need to be in the word, reading the whole thing, three quarters of which is the new the Old Testament, and we need to be teaching and preaching. If we're preaching, we should be using the whole scripture and not preaching backwards where we have our points and we add scriptures to season it, but actually working our way through the whole Bible. And then people have that encounter with God. That would be how that would be my suggestion that we read the whole thing and teach the whole thing. And that will counter the idea that there's a canon within the canon. Thanks for that succinct answer. Does, would anyone else like to weigh in on, on this question? Well, I think it's, it's very important to remember Jesus himself is um, an interpreter of the Hebrew Bible. Paul is an interpreter of the Hebrew Bible. The Gospels are, are not backing off of saying, let's use the Hebrew Bible to, to illuminate what God is doing in the present. And Paul certainly does that as well. So the whole scripture is, is all scripture is to be used. I think we want to use, we want to do theology in a ways that sees the coherent story of scripture and comprehensively understands the story through the light of scripture. So uh, uh, to try to cut off pieces, it seems to me, 
just doesn't follow the model of Jesus or of Paul. Uh, and I agree with, with Marty that love is the lens, is the hermeneutic. You know, Augustine said that any interpretation that doesn't tend toward the love of God and the love of neighbor is, is off kilter. Oh, Jesus said, if you had read this, you would know, you know, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So that lens is very important, but it's about reading the whole of Scripture, not just the Gospels, per se, or just Paul. Could I add one other thing? Please. Jesus his disciples, his apostles, and he promised that the Spirit would lead them and help them remember what he had said to them. And if I'm reading John 14 and John 16 correctly, then either we trust the apostolic witness to Jesus, which is the rest of the New Testament, or Jesus failed to accomplish that task. I mean, again, it's just another reason it's very artificial to separate Jesus from the people that he trained as though, well, they didn't really understand their master. Very good. Uh, I'm going to move on to the next question. Uh, the next question is from uh, Spacemakers. And uh, real quick here. Sorry, I'm having a couple of issues here. The next one's from Space Makers. And the question is this. How can young people... This is a very, very, very good question. How can young people speak up to uncomfortable yet tangible changes when the current state of most... And, and even though I'm not necessarily getting caught up in a particular sector or stream, I do want to honor the person of the creator and the way they ask these questions. So if some of you feel frustrated by or have an issue with how certain creators are terming things um i i think it's important that um although they're not here in person that the spirit of their question is uh made intact um the when the current state of most icoc congregations is that they end up being ostracized leaving the icoc when they do speak up why aren't there any platforms for young people to make systematic change alongside the older generations? And how many of these conversations must happen before change is made? Who wants to take that question? I'll, I'll jump on it first. Um, uh, I, I kind of really appreciate the question and I would affirm that like, it's not just like there's a particular experience and faith expression that's being experienced here um, by the creators asking the question within an ICOC context. But I can also affirm this is true outside of that context as well. Um, I was just sitting at a, uh, our annual all-staff conference listening to um, the vice president of Impact talk about generations, um, talking about everything from politics to social spaces and to the church. And he was saying there was the boomers and that generation. And because of the world that they built, it took them a long time to get into leadership. And now here we are with, you know, presidents in their 80s. And uh, what we'll be in our 60s that he was talking about Gen X before we ever. And he said, we can't we can't do that. We have to we have to leapfrog our generation. Our generation has to set up the next generation. Um and I love that lament and that awareness. I think that's part of why in churches and spaces, 
we have uh, a hard time looking. Uh, I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons that would be even more uncomfortable to talk about economic reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've sat in a lot of church staff meetings where we're, I'm reminded as a campus minister that college students don't, you know, uh, tithe and pay the bills. I appreciate that. I mean, I get that. That's a real tension. It's an uncomfortable one. Um, so there's all kinds of reasons uh, why those spaces aren't made um, and created. Uh, the second part of the question, um, why aren't there platforms for young people? I think they're making them. I think mm-hmm. space makers are a great example of of this. And so there's two parts, like the first part of this question, how do we do it? Keep doing it with confidence, but humility. And that's really hard to do, even harder to do when you're, (laughs) I mean, this question is about young people. Um, Young people naturally are the ones that will have the hardest struggle trying to maintain confidence and humility. It's the nature of youthfulness. Um, And yet do everything you can. I think of Paul's words to Timothy, set an example in love and in grace and in purity and all these things. Be the one that sets the example of of humility and um, keep moving forward in that. But I would also say you're creating those spaces and you're creating those platforms when they don't exist. And when that's done with the same kind of confident humility, they're beautiful spaces Hmm. and they're what we need. They're at least a part of the solution and 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 when you do that, you're you're playing that part, and it's been one of the things that gives me great hope, um, as a leader, as as an older leader in in my own spaces and in my stream of the restoration movement. I have a lot of hope watching young people say, "I love Jesus, and I can't figure out where to do this, so I'm going to fight for a space where I can." Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of the conversation. It may not be the whole conversation, but it's a big part of it. And I would just say, keep running. Was there anyone else who wanted to weigh in on that one? Sounds like not. So I'm going to keep going, but if somebody wants to, they can come back into it. Um, Marty, thanks for that. And then this next question actually comes to you as well. Uh, And so this one is from Hope Worldwide. And, uh, and this one is a pretty straightforward question having to do with, with what people care about the most, in a sense. And so it'll be very related to, to some of the topics that we've already broached here. Uh, the Barna Group asked thousands of American millennials and Gen Z a question. Thinking about the Christian Bible, which of the following is more important to you? And then the three options were, one, knowing it's true and trustworthy, or two, seeing that it promotes good in the world around me, or three, uh, I'm not sure. And so here, the the results of that Barna study were 36% replied that it's most important to know that the Bible is true and trustworthy. 46% replied that it's more important to see that it promotes good in the world around me. And then 18% said, I'm not sure. So the question that Hope Worldwide is asking is, what does this, so in other words, what do the results of the survey communicate to church leaders today about reaching the next generation, and what should we be doing about it? So, Marty, if you want to take that one. Sure. Um, I mean, I would say there's two different ways we can respond to 
I mean, this, and what, I love Barna's research. I, I love how they do their research. I love how they collate that for us in ways that are helpful for the church. There, and there's two ways we can handle this research. One is to panic about the unbiblical worldview and paradigm that young people have. Um, to say that in order to reach the generation, we are going to have to fix this. This is something to be fixed. They don't value the truth and the trustworthiness of the scripture. Um, and we'll add our, you know, our rants about moral therapeutic deism and all the things that they want to feel good. And the other, the other way we could look at this is we could also see the Jesus in this. And not that it's the whole conversation, but we could say, wait a minute, Jesus talked an awful lot about orthopraxy and how it relates to orthodoxy. Um, Jesus talked an awful lot about the fruit of a tree and knowing what kind of a tree it is by its fruit. Jesus, Paul talks a lot about the fruit uh, of the Spirit. And um, I mean, I think that list would qualify under, hold on, let me read it, um, that it promotes good in the world around me. Good in the world around me sounds a lot like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So there are some things, this isn't this isn't anti-gospel news. This can be very good for the gospel news. One of my favorite uh, teachers once said, uh, if the gospel isn't good news for everybody, it's not good news for anybody. Mm. And that doesn't mean that that everybody's going to accept it and everybody's going to heaven. It's just a big universalist, whatever. But it means that the good news really has to be good news for everybody. It has to be good news for the whole world all the time, or it's really not good news at all. Um, and the invitation is to embrace and accept that good news. Um, so when I see that, I see, I see a, I see a ton of hope when I look at that question. Um, that there's a. I also think as leaders, I love, I love Hope's question here. What does this communicate to church leaders today about reaching the next generation? It, it's also an opportunity for accountability. I think. In my mind, it's an opportunity to let this generation hold us accountable for how we've lived out that gospel and applied that gospel. Um, and, and I, and I, you know, I, I think of a a statement I recently ran into about this generation um, saying it, it's not your Jesus that we're rejecting; it's the way that you have told me to live that out, um, and the way we've seen that Jesus put on display. And there, there's some good critique we could offer about that. But I, yeah, there's a moment of, is this one of those generational correctives that, um, you know, Nick talked about generations earlier. Is there a generational corrective here? Is there a danger of an overcorrective? You betcha. Um, but is there also an appropriate generational corrective to be embraced and to and to listen and to hear and to talk through and to learn from? I say yes. Um, so... Those are my two cents. Yeah, if I might build on what you're saying, Marty, I, th I think that's very helpful um, to, to focus on the word good and how Jesus went about doing good and how it was the good that Jesus did that attracted people to him and, and to his presence and to his um, life among people. Or, or think about how the early church, because of what it, it wasn't because the pagans to use that word, quote unquote, um, the non-believers in the second century thought, oh, show me the scripture. I'll believe it because the scripture says it. No, it was they noticed the good. They noticed the faith. They noticed mm. 
the, the reality that was present in the community and how the community cared for one another. And that was the good that they, they yearned for. So when someone is willing to, to say, I appreciate the good that is there, that's a common ground to build on. It's a place we can start. It's a place that we can affirm, it seems to me, and call people into the good to try this story on. If you see that as good, then try this story on. Come inside the story for a minute and see it through the eyes of the story. And, and maybe you'll find a Jesus that, that I've found uh, as well. Thank you for that, John. Okay, the, ne the next question comes from Disciples Today. A very succinct question, which is, how do I as a church leader preach the unchanging truths of the gospel in a way that resonates with the next generation and doesn't alienate them? Again, if you're, you're listening to these questions, you're noticing themes. I think those themes matter. I think those themes tell a story about what people are struggling with. I think these themes tell people about things that feel contradictory, that things that one part of our brain gets around, but the other struggles with. Those of us that are living in threat likely are asking one question, while those of us who are living in a different perception of threat are asking different questions of Scripture. And, and this, again, is how trauma works. Trauma gets us to ask certain questions of Scripture a certain way. And, I, and, and if you've been listening in this conversation, I, I want you to, have, have you been able to see some themes, right? Okay, so that's the question. If I need to repeat it, I can. Uh, who wants to go for it? I'm happy. Go ahead, Doug. How do I as a church leader preach the unchanging truths of the gospel yes. in a way that resonates and doesn't alienate them? I'm not sure we can ever avoid alienation, particularly with young, youthful people because of our nature, and Marty talked about that briefly, but still, um, I think there, I've got a few ideas. One is that the next generation, really all generations, but the younger generation really appreciates stories, and the Bible is full of them, helping people to understand the basic, the big narrative and the smaller narratives, the stories of the Old Testament, Acts, Gospels. Another thing would be, to really resist the temptation to proof text, yeah. that is to do, if you're a church leader, you're preaching, you're teaching, you're making a point and you just drop a scripture in, it looks very suspicious. Um, it almost looks like you can't focus or don't have faith that if we stay in a text, we stay in a passage, the, the spirit will move and great things will happen. When you jump around with just a verse at a time, uh, I think that that just looks very suspicious. I wouldn't hold back on challenges as a church leader. There's something very powerful that when I, when I used to be in the next generation, <laughs> some generations ago, being challenged, being called higher was a wonderful thing. Uh, one last thought on this. If you're a church leader, you need continuing education yourself. Uh, it's so vital that as leaders, we, we model that. People know not just that, oh, I read my Bible every day, but I'm... I'm taking advantage of resources. I'm attending seminars or conferences, and I'm calling myself higher because then that gives us not just more knowledge, but more conviction, passion, and that can be contagious. So a few thoughts there. Hope that's helpful. I love that comment about proof texting, Doug. That's fantastic. That proof texting seems it comes off as suspicious. I think that puts words on 
something I have been able to put my finger on that people experience. I love that. That's great. All right, then if no one uh, else wants to weigh in just on that particular question, we'll move on to our next one, which will, um, again, kind of build on some of what we have done so far. So this is from Discipleship Vlogs. Uh, and this one, again, is a shorter question. How can digital thought, and this one is for anybody who wants to answer, so we haven't assigned this one, so feel free to jump in. Uh, how can digital thought leaders help bridge the gap between their online audience and local churches who have face-to-face -face intergenerational conversations in staying faithful to God's word? So, so really kind of the heart of this whole conversation, what bridging the gap and kind of strategies or ways of bridging that gap. Please take it away. Uh, I can start as somebody with a digital space. Um, I think one of the things I've tried to do, and I think I've, I've never done it well enough, I probably do this poorly, but when we're in these digital decentralized spaces, part of what we get to steward is helping people find their anchor, not in our decentralized space, but in the local expression, in the local body, in the local church. And so they're coming to us for whatever it is that they come to our platforms for. And we get to help them make sure they can find their own space in their own context. And one of the other things that I think I've always wanted to work really, and I do this with, um, golly, a handful of emails every single week, is protecting the things that God has entrusted only to that local body, the things that have been entrusted to that group of, that body of elders, that body of leaders, that body of evangelists or teachers or whatever that might be. I can't speak into that because God's entrusted that particular application and expression to your local church body. And so for me to just speak about my opinion or give my ruling on an issue would simply be at the worst divisive and at the best just noise. Um, and so to always recognize that our platforms or our digital spaces are in relationship to something that's probably far more important. And we're playing an important part. What a beautiful thing that we're able to do. But the way that we belong to the local body of Christ is probably a bigger deal than what people are learning from a podcast or a blog or anything like that. Thanks, Marty. Does anyone else want to weigh in? I just appreciate the point that um, the digital space uh, needs to point, uh, ought to serve the community, that is, and point people to community where where we can flourish, because community is necessary for flourishing. People can find that community to some degree in a digital space, and the digital space can equip and help and provide a place for expression, for uh, articulation of of um, hurts and so on um, but ultimately community is where we're going to ultimately find a, a place to um, to heal to dialogue to reconcile to um, to love digital spaces i hope are serving that and i, and I hope they do and i think they can uh, but sometimes i imagine that that's where we that some people have to start there in the digital space, and I can appreciate that. And they're not ready 
it's not the uh, community is not available to them or community is not uh, healthy for them, uh, the community in which they find themselves. Um, so I'm grateful that there are digital spaces where that journey can begin toward healing. Okay. The next question uh, comes from uh, wound of my people. Um, let me read this and, uh, I think this is a really important question. I think that uh, this is kind of where my specialty comes in as it relates to trauma. Uh, I'm really excited about adding a couple of thoughts on this one um, as well. But it says, Gian uh, from Wounded My People says, I can often feel like we're having this conversation without people being able to accept fault for why this conversation is needed in the first place. From my limited scriptural understanding, accountability is described as a deep virtue in scripture. And there are many verses detailing the importance of reconciliation, atonement, and apology. However, we rarely see accountability displayed in interpersonal actions or in passages. <clears throat> in most instances, either a party or the destructive nature of an action is condemned in a letter or speech without the readers seeing what the ensuing conversation might have been like. If not that, it's typically God himself that dishes out the consequences. In contrast, we purport to be the modern-day people learning from these stories and living out those lessons. So many people in my generation can be frustrated when leaders aren't held accountable for, the mis for misdeeds and hurts. Over the past few years, myself and peers of mine were told for our own healing and spiritual growth not to expect accountability from parties that we've been hurt by. Speaking for myself, I've only seen spiritual statements occur where the older generation asks for mutual conversation but are unwilling <clears throat> to reconcile with the power imbalances that they hold over the younger generation. And when many of these incidents wedge on each party's perception of sin conducted, social justice issues, or other disputable matters, it can only serve to deepen wedges further when each side claims humility, yet feels divinely empowered by their opinions or actions. So what do you think the older generation hears when... Uh, the younger generation, I, I think what he's saying here is when the younger generation calls for accountability and what does or should um, actual accountability look like? Can accountability actually heal our divisions or are those seeking these ideals just chasing the wind? Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? I mean, that is so and it's so important. I mean. That is naming something mm. that um, transcends all tribes. Uh, and it's so complex and there's so many, so many dimensions to it. So let me, let me just express uh, up front um, that the power differential is an important piece of this. And when we understand power in terms of control, and when we understand power in terms of management, uh, especially kind of crisis management, you know, we're going to we're going to fix this, you know, or something like that. 
Um, I think we're stepping on the wrong side of the story there. Power is about service and power is about um, uh, honesty and transparency. Uh, to, to be able to step out of the power in some sense and to be, have the humility to acknowledge. So I think there's a, there's a real struggle um, with how to, how to handle some of these situations. And, and I don't know what situation particularly they have in mind. I can, I can imagine, and I've been a part of many. So I can only speak to, to kind of my own processing here. We need to name this. It needs to be named. And leaders who are servants will will hear the naming. You know, I'm thinking about um, Tutu in South Africa and a couple of his books on forgiveness and so on. The process has to begin with naming the wound and naming the abuse or naming whatever whatever it is, the evil that's in the con congregation or the context in which we're working. It needs to be named. And the leaders need to listen, a listen with a certain humility, a listen with a, with a recognition that we are flawed. Um, when often leaders listen, understandably, with a kind of defensiveness, you know, um, that's a kind of a natural human reaction to be defensive and to protect uh, our power. That has to be a part of our own self understanding to share the empathy with the person who's been hurt, the person who's been, who is the victim here, uh, who's been abused or whatever the situation is. We, we, we have to listen to that uh, and then assume responsibility and holding leaders who sin, who abuse accountable, um, I think that's why Paul said to the to the elders, you know, there are going to be some wolves among you. You're going to have to pay attention to those wolves. Those could be sexual predators. They not just false doctrine. They could be abuses of power. They could be all sorts of things that do not exhibit the um, the humility of Christ uh, and the relationality that's supposed to exist in this community. So there's so much to go on there. Uh, and ultimately, we want to move to a space of forgiveness and reconciliation, but we can't move there without naming it and without listening and without taking responsibility. Um, I, I think the process, you know, Tutu has a couple of books on forgiveness that I think are really good. Uh, it's very hopeful books, but also very hard, very hard to be able to, 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 to listen to the naming, especially we as leaders mm. uh, of the older generation, to take our defenses down and to listen to the naming um, and to take responsibility for our role, our participation and our leadership in that community where such and such happened. I, I think it's complicated and it's diverse and it's, you know, one, one response doesn't fit all. Um, but those are, the, those are the kind of fundamental things I would think about when I'm listening to this very good and appropriate question. Hmm. Could, could I add? Of course. Of course. When someone has worked up the courage to name it, 
whatever the sin is, whatever the things that he or she feels she has to say, it's tempting to critique the person who's giving the critique, to react to the wording or maybe a certain lack of accuracy instead of just listening and realizing behind there, there's an impulse that could be very godly, a good heart. Um, I mean, I'm a purist when it comes to grammar and I like logic. <laughs> it's so easy to shut someone down. Just as in a marriage, you got to listen and, and not, not reject what someone's saying just because it may have been said with an edge or it wasn't totally coherent. It's us, we older people, we can, we can shut people down that way. I appreciate you saying that. Marty, do you want to jump on this one? This is a, this is a very important question. You, did you want to say something about this one real quick? Marty, I think you're muted. Marty, you're muted, brother. He's unmuted now. I don't know what's going on. Yikes. What is going on? Mm, we're not hearing Marty at this point. Ah, wow. I really would like to hear what he has to say. Um, yeah, I don't. we don't hear. Can everybody else hear, hear everybody else? Mm. Okay. John, you, you there? Yes, I can hear. Okay. I, I can't hear Marty, but I can hear everybody else. Ah. Okay. He's coming back in. I think what happened was uh, he came back in a couple times and it like chimed me when I was reading John's question. And so it was really distracting. Um, he's going to come back in. Let me, let me share something that I'm thinking. I've, I've really been prayerful, kind of been thinking and praying about this one. This one's really near and dear to me for many reasons. Um, let me, let me put it this way. When you look at nine 11, um, Marty, you there? Can you hear me now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll come back to what I was going to say. Go ahead, Marty. Uh, I was just going to say I loved what uh, John was sharing about Tutu's work on forgiveness. It mirrors a very Jewish conversation about what true confession and repentance looks like. Because that, I mean, there's accountability and you could force accountability like you could meet power with power. And we've seen in the world how that I mean, that can be a part of necessary accountability when it gets to that place. The kind of a king the kind of kingdom accountability would be the vulnerability and authenticity of true confession and repentance. And Tutu did a great job of, of talking about that and what was going on in Africa and the apartheid there. Um, but the Jewish world talks about these five steps. Some, some lists will make it seven, but these five steps of true confession and repentance, like there's the naming, like we've already said, there's the naming, there's the actual confession. And a lot of evangelicalism, a lot of Christianity will stop there. Like we've named it, confessed it. Now forgiveness is mine. And I don't know about God's forgiveness. That's, that, I suppose that's his business. But that's not repentance, like confession and repentance. Confession is only a small part of true, true repentance. And so in the Jewish conversation, they say the next thing that has to happen is you have to acknowledge not just that a wrong has occurred, at your, that you have committed a wrong. You have to acknowledge the impact that wrong has had. It's not just naming that I've done something. It's actually acknowledging that that thing that I have done has hurt you in all of these ways. And you have to address that hurt. 
You have to acknowledge that hurt. And we, we usually break down right at step two. Like we confess that something went on, and then we want to move right on to forgiveness. But there's this, I did this wrong, and it had all these implications. And then from there, if any reparation, any reconciliation, any restitution in the Jewish world, step number three, any of that that can take place, we have to engage that reconciliation, engage that restitution, engage that. This is why these celebrity apologies mean nothing. Because it's just a confession. There's really no acknowledgement of the hurt that's been caused. There's really no restitution of making anything right. Hmm. And that fourth part is acknowledge, like acknowledging out loud what I am going to do to make sure I do not repeat offense. Whatever it is that I have done, it could be a small thing or a big thing or whatever. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's the counseling I'm going to go to. Here's the conversations. Here's the accountability that I am going to put in place in my life that I'm going to publicly be uh, held, 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 up, held to account on. And then, and then step five is you actually change that behavior. And when you have done all five of those things in the Jewish world, that's when repentance has taken place. And this comes up every year at the high holidays with Rosh, with, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, and Yom Kippur. These two days, they work through this process of acknowledging those wrongs, making restitution, making plans of never reoffending, and changing behavior. And I think we're missing, we love the confession conversation in Christianity, and I think we're missing the true repentance conversation in a lot of our Christian dialogue. And I think that's part of what I hear when I hear um, Wounded My People's question here is, is part of accountability is ought to be for us as followers of Jesus, true repentance. What I, what I was going to mention before is very, very simple. I'm working on a project with this, uh, several folks, and what we're doing is we're studying out memorial. So here's what happens. When we go through a damaging experience, what trauma does is it sticks us with the beginning, middle, but it doesn't allow us to have the end. So you have the beginning, you have the middle, but you don't have the end. When we go through a damaging situation, our brain gets stuck in the worst part. It gets stuck in the beginning and the middle with no closure. And when we don't have resolution, our brains become reflexed. One of the most important things that you find, talking mm. about modern day context, you were talking about Nick with 9-11. When you ask people where they were when those towers ran into the building, they can tell you exactly where they were. All four of you guys right now can tell me where you were. I was a senior in high school. I remember where I was. I remember what was going through my mind. I remember how I felt. I remember what I thought. Each of you remember, and guess what? You don't need any trauma coaching to remember one of the worst, scariest days that made you feel powerless, what that made you feel like. Here's what's interesting, and I really look forward to going. When you go to New York, you see this building, this memorial, the World Trade Center One. They have memorial. Now, here's what's interesting about memorial. Memorial allows people to metabolize the damaging experiences that they go through. Because what memorial allows you to do is it allows you to have one foot in the present and one foot in the past. Here's why that's important. Most people don't understand trauma. They think that you should just be able to get over it, that healing is, is, healing is a decision instead of a process. Actually, the reality is this. When you look at some of the most heinous, atrocious issues that have happened in churches, the one thing you find missing is a lack, there is a lack of memorial. When you go to 9-11, you go to the World Trade Center, it's interesting. You don't tell people, hey, it's been 22 years. When are you going to get over it? 
You don't go to Holocaust survivors and say, hey, look, that was a while ago. When are you going to get over it? You don't tell people who've been in Vietnam or went to Iraq or Afghanistan, when are you going to get over it? And this is one of the things I think people do with religious trauma survivors is, hey, when are you going to get over that thing that's not going to allow us to convert as many people as we used to? When are you going to get over that thing that is getting in the way from us being able to create the community that allows us to have status quo? When are you you going to get out of the way? And so I think for some of us who don't understand how trauma works, where is the memorial for those who uh, were decimated by religious trauma? Where is it? It's 20, 20 years ago to the year. Yes. And yes, I'm talking about Bruno. I, I know many of us, we, we don't talk about Bruno. And we know it happens to people who talk about Bruno. 20 years ago to the year. Where's the memorial? And oh, by the way, some of us who, who are, dip, oh, you are angry about what I'm saying right now. I have a question for those of us who are just looking for things to move on. I have a question for you. It's very, very, very simple. For those who are tired of people bringing up the past, it's this. How's that working out? How's that, how's that going? Kyle, that was 20 years ago. People still bringing it up. I don't, how's that, how's that going? How's that working out for your kids? How's that, how's that working out for the people that maybe you've had in your fellowship and, the, you know, the people that are in the way? Um, how, how's that going for them? I know some of us are getting angry because it, you feel like I'm on a diatribe or a, diatribe or a soliloquy. I, I'm telling you, the way trauma works is we, we have to have memorial. Because what memorial does is it allows those painful, damaging experiences that don't receive a context. You see, what trauma does, trauma doesn't allow our experiences to experiences to receive a context what what memorial does listen very carefully what memorial does it allows those painful damaging experiences to be integrated into our personal biography this is what we see in scripture we see we see congruence we see out of 40 kings there's probably only seven or eight good ones We see in scripture, when it comes to memorial, we see memorial all over the place. But in our churches today, there's a fundamental lack of memorial for damaging experiences. Some of us may want memorial, but we don't want truth telling. Well, here's the problem. You can't have memorial without truth telling. That's what the data shows. That would be like wanting to have communion without talking about the cross. It's a problem. Memorial is something that Some of us are so afraid of, but it is your only way forward. Because what Memorial does is it tells all those people that you're scared of scaring away who are going to go read about Bruno online. What Memorial does is say, hey, guess what? We found a way to functionally integrate those damaging experiences into the way we tell our story. (laughs) So if you don't have Memorial, you don't have a way to tell your story. And people get lost when they don't have the pieces to tell their story. Memorial gives people that. So this is something that me and some folks are working on. And this is probably one of the only things that I feel like I can actually bless people with at this point, because their stories are so rich with pain. Most people think that you can just make a decision to heal. But if, if, and thank God, like some of us, and I'll just say this one last thing. If you're listening to me right now and you just think, man, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm catering to the, to, to those in pain. I've been accused of that. And, I, and again, it sounds like I'm, I've got a little bit on my heart. I do. 
Um, I want you to understand that's your brother or your sister. And what's happening is when you shut them down, part of what's going on is you're trying to work through the powerless, whatever it is that you feel. I understand they make you feel powerless. I understand that people who are carrying pain that continues to ail them makes you feel like you can't do anything. The worst thing you can do right now is to shut people down who are in pain. I would not suggest that. And so that's something I just wanted to share for a moment in terms of just memorial, in terms of acknowledgement. If people would create memorial for their experiences, we might be able to move forward. All right, thank you for allowing me to say that real quick. Um, this next one comes from women in the church. Um, oops, sorry about that. Okay, one hope is that all generations pursue intergenerational practice, i.e. working together with shared purpose and mutually beneficial actions that increases understanding, trust, respect between generations for more cohesive, unified communities, which requires intergenerational learning, learning together and from each other to further knowledge, values, skills. Unfortunately, different preferences for different biblical tools um, i.e. the uh, older prefer blueprint hermeneutics and younger gravitate toward theological and the moral judgment put on those preferences, e.g. it's wrong to use theological hermeneutic for chosen passages. It's narrow-minded, foolish to use blueprint for these set of passages. Detour, deter intergenerational learning and then intergenerational practice. Here's the question. How can we build enjoyment for learning together and stamina to learn from each other amidst these differences in biblical interpretive practices? Very good question. Okay, who wants to go for that one? I don't know. I'm, I'm looking at the thing about narrow-minded. Okay, I'm looking about older generation prefer blueprint, younger, almost the opposite. I feel like when I was young, it, I was always searching for the pattern, and now I'm thinking about the theology. So maybe I'm contradicting myself by, by critiquing the question, but um, that just kind of throws me off a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> But how to build enjoyment and have stamina not to wear each other out or, or dislike each other. Yeah, I guess that's... Uh... Well, Doug, Doug, I, I think... So I, I think I understand the heart of this question a little bit. So here's the deal. I think there is a, a conflict between Eastern and Western uh, styles of hermeneutics. I think what's happening right now, it feels like, Doug, and you can speak to this, is that there's this idea that the newer generation is... Mysti they, they're embracing mysticism and Eastern concepts from a Westernized perspective that, that that's going to be threatening again, going back to trauma and, and living in threat brain, that's going to feel threatening to a generation that has established precepts on patternism, right? Looking at the Bible or looking at the book of Acts in terms of a, a manual in terms of how to build a church. And so you sign, you're finding these collisions that are kind of Eastern and Western in perspective. But, but it, it looks like it's dressed in all these other colors and outfits, but it's really that East and West sort of collision. Um, I, I think that's part of also, I think, the heart of that question. And I may get, be getting that wrong, Karina and Travis, but anyway. Well, I think 
uh, if I could jump in here for a moment. Um, dialogue is difficult, especially when we, we have our own kind of notions about what is, a, what is a pattern, what is not a pattern, or whatever language we might use. Um, but it seems to me that one of the ways we can have this dialogue is just to, is to open the text in front of us and have this conversation together. First of all, listening very carefully to the other so that we understand what their, what their trouble is, what their concern is, what their hurt is, what, what their fear is, okay? And how they understand this text. And if we can do that together as a kind of a starting point that we're willing to listen, we have the humility to listen and to listen attentively and listen well. Then I think a second thing that, that, or another, the second step or another step, I don't know if I can put them in some kind of list, but another part of this is learning to, to watch how scripture itself does this. How does Jesus read scripture? Right. If you had read this, Jesus told and in, in, in Matthew 12, if you had read this, if you had understood this, uh, then you would not have condemned the, the innocent. Uh, uh, you know, so watching how Paul does it, how does how does Paul resource scripture, the story, experience? How does he resource that? What is what is Paul looking for when he's addressing the church? What does he bring to the church? So I think if we could become more biblical, that's that's kind of what I would want to advocate. Let's be more biblical about this and live within that world and watch how the prophets do it. Watch how the prophets apply the Torah, right? Watch how Jesus takes up the Torah. Watch how Paul uses the story of Israel and the story of Jesus to call people into a way of life and a way of living. So we got to have a lot of humility here. We have to have to have a posture of humility and listening and, and not arrogance and not condemnation, but sincere, authentic relationship. And then on the other hand, let's watch how the Bible does this and let's try to be do what the Bible does the best we can. And in the process, have that dialogue. Kyle, the thing that I love about this question, um, if I could, it, the phrase, how can we build enjoyment is like a lot. It's so striking. It's, it's like an alarming dream that we could build enjoyment and learning the Bible together. Like, li like literally that is a new phrase that I'm going to add to my vision board like my dream mm. board that would be mm. that we could believe the best in each other enough like we believe that you love jesus and you're and we're all trying our best and we all love the scriptures and jesus and we're all learning together i would expect differing opinions and it wouldn't be like a battlefield it would be an enjoyment that that's glorious like now, I don't think we can get there. I think some of the stuff that you just got done talking about, Kyle, some of the trauma that we're now having to parse through and deal with, some of the things that I, I don't think we probably get there tomorrow, 
But to build that world, like it's going to take some of that vulnerability and repentance. And But to build a world where we could sit in the same room and enjoy from differing perspectives, not the same tribe, but from differing perspectives and understandings and tribes, enjoy the learning, the, the, the Bible learning experience together. Whew. That that's a vision right there. I, mm-hmm. I, I love it. I, that, that gets me all kinds of fired up. That's beautiful. I love that question. Amen. Thanks Marty for that. Um, so we're, so we're working towards our last question. Uh, before we do, I'll, I'll just throw in a small bit, uh, kind of experientially, how I might answer the previous one, in that every every church kind of has different ways of approaching ministries, and there are reasons for, for the ways that we do ministry in that we tend to silo ministries. We tend to say, this is a campus you know, ministry. Here is a marriage ministry. Here is a family's ministry or young children's ministry or something like that. And all that makes sense because you want to reach a certain demographic and certain groups need other things that other groups don't. And that's kind of what this whole conversation is about. But, but at the same time, one of the, one of the most enjoyable times that I have had in, uh, in fellowship, I would say, is a small group that I've been part of that was a multi-generational small group where we had people who were, you know, who were senior citizens and retired. We had people who were single. We had people who were married with no children. We had people who were married with children. And you know, it was just a group of 10 to 15 or something, but, but it just came from different people with all walks of life, students even um, at the same time. And, and it was, it was beautiful because it was, it was the family of God. And, and you learn from each other. The, the older people learn from the younger people. The younger people learn from the older people. The, um, the people who have energy can take care of the, the children of the people who no longer have any energy. And, and, and there's something that, that is, it is, it is what the, what I want to say, it, it is, it is what the, the people of God are supposed to be, I think. It is, it is what it means to be part of this multi-generational family of God. And, and so I recognize that there are times where we need to separate into smaller groups and smaller tribes and, and you know, kind of appeal to what it is that each group needs. But then there, then there are moments when, when we can, as, as Marty's pointed out, the, the great wording of this question, that we can enjoy learning together and enjoy learning from each other. And so as a practical answer to this question, my, my suggestion would be if, if you are in charge of a ministry in some way, and you have the ability to facilitate small groups that are multi-generational, that are made up of people, not just all from the same walk of life, but from many walks of life. Do that, pursue that, and there will be great fruit from that. All right, this is our last question. Uh, it comes from the Icon podcast. And uh, and this one we are opening up to everybody. And, and given that it's our last question, it might be fitting for each person to, to answer it one at a time so that we get to hear kind of one last word from each person. So I'll go ahead and, and read it. And, and it is a straightforward and relatively short question. And it has to do with deep Bible study, which is uh, something that obviously resonates with me, given what it is that I have devoted my my own career and passion to. Um, so here's, here's the question. Uh, it seems that the younger generation are engaged, uh, that are, sorry, the younger generation that are engaged spiritually have a hunger to know and understand the Bible in a fashion that is more sensitive to cultural and historical fidelity than in previous generations. So you can push back on on whether that's true or not if you want. Um, But the the real heart of the question is, one, would you agree with that generalization? And then if so, two, and I think here's where, where it really matters for us, what can churches do 
to encourage that, that hunger for understanding the Bible, its context and, and cultural understanding and all of that. So what can churches do to encourage that both in reading the Bible and in responding to it? So take it away, those of you who would like to. I'll go first. Get get done. Get off this thing. No, I was kidding. Um, uh, I I I do think that's true uh, in my experience. And I, I I'm where I go in the college world may not be as in a particular stream or corner, maybe, but generally speaking, across evangelicalism or or even outside evangel. I, I, yes, I think that's that's true. I don't know if that comes from a. I would suspect based on what I've looked at with generational stuff or, or heard or listened to in them, that comes from a relative distrust in this very more recent modern era of just the rise of institutions that have proven to, to crumble political institutions, whatever that might be, post-modernity. I'll just say, I think post-modernity has made a, the last two generations unbelievably skeptical of the recent history and believing there's more depth and rootedness and more ancient history. Um, as far as how to maximize that, um, you know, I, I attend a very Stone Campbell church, but one of the things I love about the church that I attend is they are not afraid to reach into other traditions and use things that, um, that, that just leverage the beauty of whatever, like the liturgies of, or even the, um, the lectionary readings like they're not afraid to reach in and grab some ancient rooted practice that might go back a few centuries or even even back further than that or prayer practices or these are all things that can bring brand new life. And because they are so rooted in history and practiced by believers for centuries, there is a sense of accountability. Like uh, you were talking about themes, Kyle, and accountability is one of those themes that I've heard in a lot of these questions. Mm. And I think history when it's been around long enough, provides some level of accountability to a practice, some level of accountability, because it had to go through enough generations. It had to be experienced and shaped and and lived out and practiced by enough believers. So I, I do I do think that's that generalization is true. And I do think it's an opportunity, especially in our tradition, where we're not bound to any practice, we're not bound to any denominational expression. And yet the whole thing is kind of ours to use when it's when it's appropriate to the things that we want to accomplish. Hmm. Excellent. I'm happy to go in the middle. Um, <laughs> thank you, Marty. That's very thoughtful. Um, as a very young Christian, I was interested in what happened in the first century and what was happening in the 20th century, maybe the 19th. The other centuries seemed irrelevant. But in studying church history, I'm amazed at how many awesome things there are to learn in every century, in every generation. I think we need to teach church history, but even as we preach and teach, to give that kind of historical context, it'll show that we're not quite so alone. They're people of good heart, men and women who've struggled generation after generation. Connected with that thought is one more. Uh, 
in the restoration movement, certainly in the ICOC, we don't do very well at respecting people from other groups. Hmm. Humility would go a long way. We'd say, we realize we do have a lot to learn from church history and from others. Let's be consistent. We've always recommended, read this book, it'll change your life. Oh, is he in our group? No, oh, too bad. Or he's not a real Christian. We've been inconsistent. We've encouraged people to, to read books written by people from various groups, but the way we've talked about them and the way we distance ourselves from church history, it's been very isolating and polarizing. So I respect, I just need an awful lot more respect. Hmm. Well, I appreciate the, the direction both Marty and Doug went there. Um, I, I have a high value on on historical practices. I mean, I do examine from the Jesuit tradition. Um, I do Jesus prayer from the uh, Eastern Church tradition, centering prayer. So in, in liturgical practices, uh, I appreciate a, a community that incorporates some of the historic liturgical practices. So I, I really appreciate the direction uh, that Marty and, and Doug took, but I didn't really understand the question in that way. I, I, I understood the question. I may be totally wrong because uh, I'm hearing the question from where I'm sitting, you know, so without more context, I, I heard the question be more along the line. And this, again, may be totally off of how do I read the Bible in a way that is sensitive to its, the fact that it has its own cultural and historical context? How do I do that? Um, and what do I do with that? How do I, how do I read the Bible recognizing that it is situated in a different culture, in a different historical framework, with different history uh, informing it and flowing through it? And how then do I use the Bible in that, uh, with it kind of having that embedded character? As, as the common phrase is used these days, uh, the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us, which actually is kind of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. Um, so recognizing its cultural embeddedness, how then do I enter that story? What story do I enter? Am I entering the culture and becoming part of that culture and then transferring that culture to my culture? Or am I entering the theological story, the, the pattern of God's activity and uh, in Israel and in Jesus and in the church. And that pattern of activity is the pattern I want to imitate. It's the pattern I want to embody in my own life and in, my, and in the communities in which I live. And discerning that pattern, discerning that theological story, uh, becomes the, uh, the goal of reading the Bible. Um, how can I do that better? I think we do it better in community. We do it better when we do it together and we share and we see and we listen, just like this question, you know, Marty heard it one way and Doug heard it one way and I hear it in a different mm. way. Well, that's, we need a community where we can hear it together, not so that we have the same take, but that we have informed perspectives that we, as we listen to each other, because People have seen things in Scripture that I had never seen until I heard them say it. And then when they said it, I thought, oh, yes, of course. How, how could I have missed that? Well, I missed it because it wasn't, it wasn't uh, in my worldview. It wasn't in my, it wasn't in my uh, experience, you might say. 
for example, reading lament psalms. I, I remember I read lament psalms uh, in college, but I didn't really experience lament psalms until my wife died. And I didn't experience lament in its fullness until I did it with a group who read Psalm 13 together. And we heard each other's stories and how those stories are are, are given voice in Psalm 13 and Psalm 77 and Psalm 44, etc. So I think we need to find a way in our churches to bring back, as the earlier question said, the joy of being together and listening to Scripture together and listening to each other in how we hear Scripture as we seek to discern the story of God, the pattern of God's activity that we are called to imitate and become a participant in that story. John, I don't think you could have ended on a better note for what it is that we are trying to do. Hold on, hold on, Nick. Do you have any thoughts about that? Because <laughs> you, you're you're a panelist, you're an under, undercover panelist, bro. Do you have a couple of quick thoughts on that? I, well, I would he, love he to just hear. said he just said it couldn't end better. So what are you asking? <laughs> you? What are you, what are you trying to make him do, Kyle? <laughs> oh no, it's all good. It's all good. I can't I can't improve on a word, and yet somehow I will find a way to keep talking. About it. <laughs> no, keep going, brother, because I'm sure you can improve. I'm, I'm sure. Kidding, uh, not, I'm I was simply going to reiterate and and do yeah. exactly what you're asking me to do, Kyle. Which was which is to say, I mean, this is what. Like what we're doing right now, I hope, is the embodiment of exactly what you're talking about, John, right? That that I have grown just from listening to all of you today and hearing things that I didn't that I didn't know to see. I didn't know to hear until someone pointed it out to me. And and there's deep beauty in that. That is that is the, the beauty and the mystery of what it is to come together uh, in the name of Jesus. And, and again, so, you know, to, to do the plug of, of kind of what my role is on, on this, on this panel or as a, as a kind of host slash sponsor is I'm, I'm here representing common grounds, uh, and common grounds unity. And, and what we are trying to do in this kind of grassroots unity movement is that very thing is to get together either digitally or ideally even in person in, you know, having a cup of coffee with, with another group of people where, where you share a meal together, where you share a drink together and where, where you hear from somebody else the way that they understand and read text and realize, oh, there is truth there too. There is Christ there too in the face of that person that is sitting across from me. And together we are better than we were if I did it my way and they did it their way. Mm. And so, and so there, is, there is beauty in all, of, uh, in all of what it is that, that you are expressing. And then I hope that that's what we are enacting in this conversation. So, so that's all I, I will say to that. Oh, also, I teach at Pepperdine. So if you really want it, come get a degree at Pepperdine, too. Get, there you go. Right. There you go. Thank you. Well, I want to thank everyone for their time today. I want to thank all the panelists. Thank you guys so much for, for coming in. And there was a comment made about where the women. So I, I got the conversation started. Part two is on everybody listening. If you're listening right now, don't exist in the subthreads. Subthread culture is overrated. I'm telling you, man, some of you guys need to become podcasters. Some of you guys need to start a channel today. Uh, some of you guys who've been existing um, sort of in other people's platforms, it's time to, it's time to level up. And uh, so many of you guys have amazing thoughts. And so I look forward to whatever the next theme event is um, put on by the next generation who are reaching out to the older or the older who are reaching out to the younger, whatever it is. This is the first, I believe, hopefully, of many, many conversations to come. 
Nick, thank you so much for making time. You put a lot of hard work into going through, combing through, fine till, fine combing through the details. I appreciate that so much. And to all of you who uh, took your time today, thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.